Hello, listeners and lovers of learning, and welcome to episode three of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. Recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, this is a podcast in which I summarize my key takeaways from Twitter, blogs, research papers, conversations, and even my own classroom from the week just past. This week's the final week of holidays, the summer holidays for teachers here in Australia. So this week, no lessons from the classroom, but hopefully I'll be able to bring some of them to you next week. This week, to start off with, we'll be looking at a blog from a student who's tried out a few efficient learning strategies and looking at some of their findings. Secondly, we'll be looking at some edgy podcasts for kids and one particularly inspirational example. Thirdly, are laptops and tablets a help or a hindrance to note-taking? We'll then look at the rise of randomized control trials and finish with a nice quote from Dylan William. Let's get stuck in. This first piece was originally written by Saida Nizami and was shared on the Learning Scientist blog. Over a period of six weeks, Saida tried out six different strategies that are based by cognitive science in order to improve her studying. These strategies were space practice, retrieval practice, elaboration, interleaving, concrete examples, and dual coding. I wanted to share a quote from the final paragraph of Saida's article. Saida says, Overall, each of the six strategies had their strengths and weaknesses, and it somewhat depends on which method is preferable to you. But I think the two that are truly essential are retrieval practice and spacing. Retrieval practice was and is my preferred way to study for a quiz or exam but this experience made me realise how truly useful it is. To be perfectly honest, spacing was a strategy I'd never tried before, even though teachers had always stressed that cramming wasn't effective. The thing I loved about this article was, it wasn't teachers telling students what to do, and it wasn't teachers telling other teachers what to tell students to do. Instead, it was the perspective of a student. And as I was reading it, I was thinking how approachable it would be for some of my students. I think it could be a really low barrier and inviting way to in- introduce some of my new students this year to some of these essential and really effective studying techniques. So a big thanks to Saida for putting together that article. The second thing that I was pleasantly surprised by this week was a blog post from Cult of Pedagogy. This blog post detailed a host of podcasts that are suitable for students and young people around issues from science to quirky stories to classical music. One particular podcast caught my attention. Here's the blurb that was included on the blog post. The show about science. This science interview show is hosted by a six-year-old, Nate, and while it has some serious science chops, it's also just plain adorable. Nate talks to scientists about everything from alligators to radiation to vultures in his distinctly original interviewing style. They had suggested we have a listen to an episode on ants, which I believe, uh, as Nate said in the episode, was his first live interview. I just wanted to include a little bit of an excerpt from the interview here. Hey guys, I'm very excited for another episode of the show about science. This is your host, Dave. Today is going to be my first in-person interview. Today I'm going to be interviewing Mikey Bustos head-to-head. You might know him from his channel, Ants Canada. And if you don't, I really recommend searching it on YouTube. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, sure. I am Mikey Bustos. I'm originally from Canada. 
but I recently moved to the Philippines just maybe five years ago. And I run the YouTube channel Ants Canada, which is all about ants. So, Mikey, what is your favorite topic that you've done on your ant channel? Well, first of all, I must say I am so impressed that you have your own podcast, sir. Thank you for having me here. To a fellow podcaster who's just starting out, this was a really, really inspiring lesson to see that six-year-olds can be doing it as well. Are laptops and tablets a help or a hindrance to note-taking? I can't remember where I came across this article this week, but I came across an article called The Impacts of Computer Usage on Academic Performance, Evidence from a Randomised Trial at the United States Military Academy. This paper essentially had three conditions. The first condition was students could use tablets or laptops however they liked. The second condition was Students could still use tablets, but they had to be face up on their desks. And the third condition was completely controlled and there were no laptops or tablets allowed in the lecture theatre. It was a large experiment. I believe there were around 700 students. And it was carried out over one whole semester, which was a big thing that differentiated this study from other ones on the effectiveness of laptops and tablets in classrooms, just the sheer length of the study. So I just wanted to read the abstract. We present findings from a study that prohibited computer devices in randomly selected classrooms of an introductory economics course at the United States Military Academy. Average final exam scores among students assigned to classrooms that allowed computer use in either of the conditions were 18% of a standard deviation lower than exam scores of students in classrooms that prohibited computers. So essentially, those in which computers were used in any form, students did worse. This was a statistically significant finding. Through the use of the two separate treatment arms, we uncovered evidence that this negative effect occurs in classrooms where laptops and tablets are permitted without restriction and in classrooms where students are only permitted to use tablets that must remain flat on the desk surface, as I just said. This linked in well with a post from David Didow this week, which was talking about the efficacy of note-taking on paper versus a digital device. Here's a quote from his blog post. One of the highlights of my day at research at Amsterdam was hearing Paul Kirshner speak about edu-myths. We heard about Paul Kirshner in episode one of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways with the great quote, learning is a change in long-term memory. Anyway, I digress. He began his presentation by forbidding the use of laptops or mobile phones, explaining that taking notes electronically leads to poorer recall than handwritten notes. And there's a link to one of Paul Kirshner's articles on that uh, in the show notes. The benefits of handwritten over type notes include better immediate recall as, read, as well as improved retention after two weeks. In addition, students who take handwritten notes are more likely to remember facts, but also to have better future understanding of the topic. Fascinatingly, it doesn't even matter whether you even look at these notes, the simple act of making them appears to be beneficial. I explored note-taking in quite a bit of depth uh, last year. I did read quite a few papers trying to get my head around this whole note-taking debate. As I was going through university myself, I always took notes on my laptop, and I really felt to myself that that was the most efficient way. I got into a little bit of a debate with David Didow on Twitter about this. It kind of went a bit haywire, but eventually I think I managed to bring it back uh, by going outside of the 140 character limit and sharing a photo of some stuff that I'd written. Essentially, the way that I feel about these evidence to support handwritten note-taking is I 100% agree with the assertion that the generative effect of note-taking is essentially the benefit you get from the actual process of note-taking itself. That's because 
for many of us who've grown up with computers on laptops, we can type much faster than we can write by hand. What this means is that as we're seeing information and information is coming in, we're actually having to synthesize it much more effectively if we're writing by hand than if we're just writing on laptops. But in my opinion, there are actually contexts in which you will be better off and it will be more effective for you to take notes on a laptop. Example that I cited when I was talking to David Didow about it on Twitter was my third year nuclear and atomic physics course. Now, this was a course that I found very, very challenging. And essentially, I would go into a lecture, be completely baffled with what the lecturer was saying for approximately an hour, and then leave feeling quite confused, often more confused than when I entered. The challenge was I didn't have the requisite uh, background knowledge to actually follow what the lecturer was on about. So all I could do really was listen to hints and cues in his speaking, things like this is an important point, or here's something you might like to think about, or definitions of different terms in an equation uh, to be able to try to decode what he was saying. Now, I was never going to be able to synthesize whilst I was in that actual lecture. As I mentioned, sorry, my background knowledge wasn't up to scratch on it, but also my working memory was just being completely overloaded. The only thing I could hope to get out of those lectures was the key points that the lecturer thought that he should be stressing and that I should be taking away. By having my laptop there and the PDF slides that he have, what I was able to do was to use annotations within those slides and use my much faster typing than handwriting to take down those key points in as much detail as possible to then go and study later. These studies that are cited by Paul Kirshner, uh, when I was having a look at them last year, what generally happens in them is the condition is that the students take notes and then they often don't get an opportunity to review them afterwards. So you, what you're testing is just that generative effect. You're not also testing the impact of restudying. Now, of course, if I talk for 10 minutes and get someone to take down as many notes as they can, and then I test them on every single thing that I've said, if they've written down every single thing that I've said and then been able to revise those things over and over again up to this test date, of course they're going to be able to do better than if they were just handwriting and took down a couple of points. So I think there are definitely contexts in which laptops can be more effective at note-taking uh, for note-taking than handwritten notes. However, I think it still stands and it's still a fantastic point and a really interesting point that both Paul Kirshner and David Didow have shared in terms of the generative effects and the stronger generative effects of note-taking with pen and paper. First big rant on teacher Ollie's takeaways. Okay, the next article is on the rise of randomized controlled trials. And this article came, uh, came across through a tweet from Harry Fletcher Wood. Essentially, the original article, which was written by Robert Slavin, told us about the rise of randomized controlled trials in education research. We did hear about Robert Slavin uh, again in TOT episode one, where we had that great quote from him on reciprocal teaching. Uh, it was via the, the Dylan William. Dylan William was actually quoting Robert Slavin and saying that when we do reciprocal teaching, most of the benefits actually accrue to the student who does the majority of the teaching rather than the one benefiting or the one receiving the, the teaching or the tutoring in that specific instance. Back to this randomized controlled trials paper. Here are some excerpts. Reports of rigorous research are appearing very, very fast. In our secondary reading review, there were 64 studies that met our very stringent standards. 55 of these used random assignments and even the nine quasi-experiments all specified assignment to experimental or control conditions in advance. We eliminated all research-made measures 
But the most interesting fact is that of the 64 studies, 19 had publication or report dates of 2015 to 2016. So they're essentially saying we're seeing a massive rise of randomized controlled trials in education research. In a recent review I did with my colleague, Alan Chung, we found that the mean effect size for large randomized experiments across all of the elementary and secondary reading math and science is only plus 0.13, much smaller than effect sizes from smaller studies and from quasi-experiments. However, unlike small and quasi-experimental studies, rigorous experiments using standardized outcomes measures replicate. These effect sizes may be, not be enormous, but you can take them to the bank. So that's a key point from Robert Slavin, and he expands upon it a little later in the article. One might well argue that if the SIM findings, the intervention was called SIM, are depressing, because the effect sizes were quite modest, though usually statistically significant. This may be true, but once we can replicate meaningful impacts, we can also start to make solid improvements. Replication is the hallmark of a mature science, and we're getting there. If we know how to replicate our findings, then the developers of SIM and many other programs can create better and better programs over time and with confidence, and that once designed and thoughtfully implemented, better programs will reliably produce better outcomes as measured in large randomized controlled experiments. This means a lot. The key quote that I took out of this paper and the one that I, or this article should I say, and the one that I retweeted was just in that last paragraph. Replication is the hallmark of a mature science and we're getting there. As Dylan William would say, everything works somewhere and nothing works everywhere. But still, I think the tendency towards uh, more rigorous education research is a real positive. And finally, a nice quote to end on. Uh, this was a quote from Alfie Cohn and he was quoting Dylan William. I, this, this quote really made me laugh and it's about using grades as opposed to comments. When kids receive grades and comments, the first thing they look at is the grade. The second thing they look at is someone else's grade. Thank you for joining me for another week of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. As always, you can find the show notes with links to all the resources that I mentioned at www.ollielevel.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, please write a review on iTunes to help more people to find us. Thanks for your time. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.